Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Less than a year after Slate published The Black Film Canon, its list of the 50 best films by black directors, the landscape blossomed with more groundbreaking movies. Jordan Peele's Get Out reignited smart topical horror. Barry Jenkins' Moonlight took Best Picture at the Oscars. That was followed by the blockbuster Black Panther and the quirky Sorry to Bother You. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. So, the list got an update this year. We'll talk about the additions to the new black film canon after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Slate Magazine published their black film canon seven years ago in 2016 when Obama was still president. By the way, I, I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I could. And immediately, films like Jordan Peele's Get Out broke new ground and the film Moonlight by Barry Jenkins won the Oscar for Best Picture, ultimately. No, there's a mistake. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. With black filmmaking flourishing, by 2023, an update was needed. 25 films have now been added to the new black film canon. And today we'll talk about some of those new additions with the list's creators, NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour's Aisha Harris and Slate's Dan Coys. We're also joined by one of the esteemed members of the voting panel, comedian and producer-director W. Kamau Bell. Great to have you on, Kamau. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And welcome, Dan Coys. Thanks. And Aisha Harris, really happy to have you with us, too. Hi, thanks for having me. So there is this long and rich history of Black film storytelling, despite the odds, as your your list shows with films that date back to the 1920s. But as I was referring to in the intro, I'm curious, Aisha, what you'd say happened after 2016 when it comes to the landscape of of Black filmmaking. What did you notice? Well, uh, even in our initial publishing of the 2016 version, 
by that point, the Oscar So White campaign had been a force in Hollywood in many ways. It, it really brought attention to the lack of Black nominees every year after year and winners yeah. year after year. And while, you know, there's no magic fix-all, no cure-all, uh, we're still seeing these issues today. When you look at the nominees this year, there were very few uh, nominees and only one winner, Ruth Carter, this year. Um, so obviously there's still an issue, but I think we've seen this flourishing of Black creativity where filmmakers have been able to have more access to different platforms, bigger platforms, and also just more freedom to be weird and, and thoughtful and just creative in so many ways that they might have had fewer opportunities to do so in the past. Yeah. Kamau, is there anything you would add to that in terms of the kinds of stories that were being told in the last, like, seven years or so? I mean, you know... I feel like this black people have always had a diverse amount of stories to tell. It's just, we didn't always have access to the levers of power to tell those stories. So to me, it's like, this is just an explosion in the stuff. It's like a, you know, it's like tapping into a oil well or, a, or an electric car well uh, for Californians <laughs> uh, to sort of like show that this stuff's already been here. It's just now we have access, more access to the lever levers of power. Yeah. So you were on the voting panel, Kamau, for the new Black Film Canon and the, the Black Film Canon of 2016 with its list of 50. Now its list of 75. I'm curious for this sort of update, what guided your decision making in terms of the films that you picked to be on the list? I mean, it was just, an, you know, and I'd love for Aisha and Dan to talk about this. It was just so much more to pick from. It felt like <laughs> it, it felt like we'd been another 50 years or something because there had been such a, you know, an explosion of black film. And I really, you know, and maybe because of the highlighting that the other list did, and a lot of people did through Oscar So White and things, the April Rain specifically, that there was just, it was hard to keep the list of five. And I sent a list and then had to go, no, 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 that's the wrong list. Here's the here's the right list. So like it was it was really a lot more difficult this time. And also I was honored to be asked again. And I felt like I'd had like a glow up since the last time they had talked to me. I felt like I was actually more qualified this time. <laughs> oh, well, Dan, you uh, or the new canon's introduction said that we're now living in a different world for black film. So is there anything that you would add as well about sort of this the changes that happened since 2016? All I would say is that, you know, when Aisha and I first started talking about uh, expanding the list. We thought, oh, well, we'll add 10 to make it an even 60. That'll be easy. And then when we actually tried to decide, when we saw the list we got from all our panelists and saw how many incredible movies were on that list and started just thinking, well, what has the last seven years really wrought in terms of Black film? We were like, well, we, there's no way we can only add 10. Uh, so we went with the full 25. <laughs> well, talk about one of the films that you want to highlight that you really want people to watch that's been added as part of um, the new 25. It, well, it's a movie that has already come up today, which uh, which is Moonlight, um, a movie that really was a signal moment in the history of Black film and its intersections with the canon makers, in this case, specifically the Academy. And that moment on stage at the Oscars uh, was a vivid, uh, accidental uh, illustration of a kind of... Um, of of anointment um, for Barry Jenkins for this film, um, and uh, and a, I think a truly inspirational moment for a lot of young and old Black filmmakers. I remember when we did the first edition of the Black Film Canon, um, 
in 2016, Barry Jenkins' debut, Medicine for Melancholy, which is mm -hmm. set right in San Francisco and is really about San Francisco, was on that list. We were really happy to have it on that list and in our, you know, our blurb for it. We talked about how, well, it sure seems like his next feature might be really promising. We hope it's great. Uh, and that next feature was Moonlight. <laughs> and uh, it fulfilled that promise and then some and really changed the playing field for art film, for the way that Black stories um, told artistically um, can be viewed by a broader viewing public and can also still feel so specifically and uh, intentionally of of that of its own culture it's based on terrell alvin mccraney's play it has this beautiful dramatic structure it's a triptych you know three small stories of one young man's coming of age in miami it's a romance it's a meditation on masculinity it's totally and absolutely beautiful and still feels like a miracle that it won yeah. best picture i feel like the word beautiful is the word that i hear so often associated with this film for such good reason our producer caroline smith actually pulled a clip from it we'll play it now this one time, I run by this old, this old lady. I was running, hollering, cutting a food, boy. This old lady, she stopped me. She said, running around, catching up all that light. In moonlight, black boys look blue. You blue. That's why I go call you. Blue. Say your name, Blue. <laughs> nah. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. That's a clip from Moonlight. Kamau, I think that was also on your list, right, of, of films to have included in the canon. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I mean, it's 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 hard. It's 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 easy to pick a list that one uh, to pick a picture that one best picture. That's not the most genius thing that's ever been done. But uh, I think for me, it's just an expansion of like I think of Daughters of the Dust when I hear that clip and the idea that like that seemed like such an outlier, Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. Mm -hmm. And but what that film did was show that like blackness is not even is mutable and it's changeable and it looks different in different ways depending on where you are in the country. And so this to me is an extension of the idea of like that even as a black person, you can be introduced to different types of blackness in this world, even if you've been black for a long time, like I have. So for me, it's just, I'm always a champion of, of the black weirdos, which I say with the most affection of all of that I can. Yeah, I know. Weirdness. I feel like being able to be weird. I mean, it's not like films haven't been trying to do that, but also having it be recognized for the artistry that it is, is a sign of progress <laughs> in terms of, of the film landscape too. Um, Aisha Harris, what's your pick? What would you like to start us off with from, from your list? Well, speaking of weird, uh, <laughs> one, of, one, of, one of my picks is weird and also uh, is, is another sort of uh, Bay Area located film that is Sorry to Bother You from 2018. Yeah. Um, it's set in Oakland and it's directed by Boots Riley, who uh, is the front man of the local hip hop group, The Pooh. And, um, and 
it's just a really interesting, weird, it's hard to describe dark comedy, but Lakeith Stanfield stars as Cash, who's this 20-something who's stuck in a soul-sucking telemarketer job. Um, and this movie touches on so many different things from the idea of a white voice. And one of the like most clever and weird parts of this film is the fact that when Black characters in the movie use their quote-unquote white voice, they're actually dubbed over by white actors. So David Cross is speaking as Lakeith Stanfield when he's using his white voice. Um, Patton Oswalt and Lily James are also featured. Um, and it's such, what I like about this film is that beyond just the idea of the white voice, it's about the power of unions. It's about the plight of working for giant corporations. It's about living in a rapidly gentrifying city. And I think that this movie feels very ahead of its time, um, even though it's only a few years old. We're having all of these conversations now when we're talking about everything from Amazon and quiet quitting. Um, and I think that it just kind of was really prescient in that way. And the performances are great. And the last third of this film, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil <laughs> it, but you will, it, you will not be expecting it. <laughs> It's one of the most memorable endings I have seen in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, it's such a strong premise, but yeah, and then it just goes in an incredible direction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we're talking with Aisha Harris, host of NPR's pop culture happy hour. Dan Coy is a writer for Slate, W. Kamau Bell, comedian, host of CNN's United Shades of America, a director and producer as well. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What's your favorite film by a Black director? Why do you love it? What movie do you hope is in the Black film canon? Or which movie do you agree with the inclusion of? If you are hearing some of the ones that have been mentioned so far, you can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call. We're at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. And we've gotten a few responses from listeners ahead of the show. This listener writes, so many great films by Black directors, but Malcolm X by Spike Lee is my favorite. Mesmerizing performance by Denzel Washington. And hopefully it introduced many Americans to the incredible Malcolm X, one of the most important individuals in 20th century history. Thanks for that. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Slate and NPR's new Black Film Canon is a list of 75 of the best Black-directed films of the last 100 years, from Oscar Michaud's silent-era classic Within Our Gates to F. Gary Gray's Friday to Rada Blank's The 40-Year-Old Version, voted on by a panel of critics, scholars, and filmmakers, including people like Ava DuVernay, Gina Prince-Bythewood, and our guest today, W. Kamau Bell. We're also talking with the list's creators, Aisha Harris, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, Dan Coys, writer for Slate, and you, our listeners, 866-733-6786, the number, if you want to tell us your favorite film by a Black director director or a film that you know is on the list that affected you and you'd love to second for any reason or a a film that you hope is on the Black Film Canon list, email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Zach writes, I'd nominate Go Tell It on the Mountain from 1985 by Stan Lathan, a film adaptation of a James Baldwin story. It's an extremely powerful story and movie. It moved me and exposed me to the black experience in the rural South and a big city. Go Tell It on the Mountain. Aisha, did that get any votes? I know that um, the film I Am Not Your Negro definitely from 2016 was on there related to James Baldwin, the documentary, but not sure if that film based on... A James Alvin story got on there too. Yeah, no, no one, I at least this round, no one in our panel recommended it. And I can't recall the the initial 2016 one. Um, I'm pretty sure I watched that in high school. I don't remember it that well. And I've definitely read the the James Baldwin uh book version of it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't in contention, but I Am Not Your Negro is such a such a great documentary. That's from 2016 and was a was a new addition to this version of the canon. And it was directed by Raul Peck. And it's such a, again, it's another movie that um, plays with formality and um, expands the idea of what a documentary can be and look like and sound like. It takes a ton of archival footage and uh, combines it with an unfinished manuscript by James Baldwin and weaves this very prophetic meditation on American racism. Um, It's narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. And I... Baldwin, you know, has been quoted ad nauseum for for good reason, Um, (laughs) of course. Uh, But, you know, I think that it's really, really interesting to be able to see Baldwin interpreted in this way. And hearing his voice, it just really, hearing his voice uh, through Samuel Jackson, especially, it just really sears in a way um, that brings new light and new, uh, you know, uh, impressions on, on what he was saying and what he was talking about. Yeah, well, let's hear a little bit of the brilliance of James Baldwin. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris with $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself. You had to be able then to turn off all the antenna with which you live because once you turn your back on this society, you may die. You may die. And it's very hard to sit at a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you. 
The years I lived in Paris did one thing for me. They released me from that particular social terror, which was not the paranoia of my own mind, but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop, every boss, everybody. From I Am Not Your Negro, from the 2016 documentary about James Baldwin. Dan, what does make a film worthy of being on the list? Did it have to meet certain criteria in terms of impact? No, we were, you know, we were very careful to think as broadly as possible about what can make a film belong on a canon like this. And and part of the experiment of the Black film canon, both the original one and this one, was in thinking broadly about what canonization means. You know, in artifacts like the Sight and Sound list or the Oscars, you know, these long running critical or industry acclamations have often revolved around a certain kind of quote unquote quality. Um, and that quality usually has a certain amount of money behind it and a certain amount of um, of star power and a certain kind of serious prestige. And it doesn't often leave room for, for example, weirdness of the type that we talked about um, in, in, uh, in the first couple of movies or discomfort of the type that um, James Baldwin provokes in white viewers. Uh, and, um, and it's, so it was a real pleasure, I think, to include in this list movies like, for example, uh, Friday movies that are uh, comedies, you know, a, a more recent example is girls trip. And <laughs> we, we even thought more broadly about, Okay, what about TV movies, for example? You know, the the caller or the emailer who asked about Go Tell It on the Mountain, that was originally made for PBS. Um, it didn't end up on the list, I think, in part because there's a whole several decades worth of really worthy, valuable TV movies about the Black experience that were the only kinds of cinematic tellings of those stories that could get financed at those time. Aisha, I know when we were making this list, you mentioned a number of TV movies that were crucial to you growing up um, that weren't even on my radar as a white yeah. kid growing up in the suburbs. Yeah, like one of them was Polly from, uh, I think, the early 90s, late 80s. And it starred Felicia Rashad and um, Rudy from The Huxtables. And now I'm all of a sudden forgetting uh, her name. But uh that was a basically a black remake of Pollyanna. And I watched that movie so many times because my parents had it taped on VHS. Um, yeah, it was, it was, but I think it, we did actually wind up including a couple of uh, VH, uh, TV movies on our list. Um, not this time around, like from the 2016 version that are included here. So we have Bessie uh, directed by D. Rees, and that was originally produced for HBO. Um, we also have Their Eyes Were Watching God um uh from starring uh Halle Berry so we we did expand those things but like you know again we only we, there's definitely movies that are we are missing and we hear we hear people when they say like why isn't this on there um <laughs> but we, we we tried we tried to kind of touch every every sort of corner of black filmmaking as best we could yeah. Well, Matthew writes, I'm wondering what your guests think of Nope. I found it to be mind-bending genre. I found it to be a mind-bending genre buster full of triple entendres and clever homages to the B-films of my youth. The novel take on aliens as being 
From here was potent. I found the film deeply philosophical, and it melted in my mind with lingering images, feelings, and questions. Thanks, Matthew. I love how our listeners are such great writers. <laughs> Sometimes their comments are really lovely and poetic. But yeah, let's talk about Jordan Peele. W. Kamau Bell. Kamau, did you see uh, Nope? <laughs> uh, nope. You did uh, not see Nope. <laughs> oh my God. Are you resisting seeing Nope the way that you resisted for a long time seeing Get Out or just totally no, different no, no. reasons? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, now it's because I have too many children. And so most of the movies I see have to have to be animated and scored by Lin-Manuel Miranda. So that's <laughs> right. not, that's not uh, no, it's just, I haven't gotten there yet. It's not that, no, Get Out was a very different experience as I wrote about in the, yeah, I think Jordan Peele almost doesn't get enough credit, but Get Out is a different experience as far as like, as a black man, who was married to a white woman. I saw the trailer for Get Out originally, and I was like, that looks genius. I'll never see it, because <laughs> it's way too close to the bone. So I did eventually see it, but I had to lie about it for months, because everybody assumed I'd seen it. And I was like, yeah, that part was great, too. I love that part. Oh. Um, but yeah, so but well, no, Jordan Peele, I feel like, is like the patron saint of like expanding, in some sense, what Black people are capable of cinematically. I mean, even as a Black guy who just directed a four-part docuseries that was not was not on my resume to do, I feel like he expanded the idea of like what black people in entertainment can do. You see so many black creators getting access to directing and writing and bigger projects now. That is, I mean, Boots Riley's part of that too, but I think Jordan Peele, that movie came out of nowhere. If we remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah and, totally. and, and it's, you know, and it is a blockbuster and that's a <laughs> mode that black directors haven't had the chance to work in very often. And I love that he got the budget to make something big and he really sees the day, but because he's Jordan Peele, he also used this opportunity to create a spectacle that also critiques the history of Hollywood spectacle. And that makes the movie totally fun to watch, but even more fun to think about afterwards. I think there are just not that many blockbusters you can really say that about. Yeah. Okay, I'll see it. Okay, I'll see it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> well, I want to say a little bit more about Nope in a second, because I think if I remember correctly, Dan, it was on your list for one you really did want to get into. But I just have this question for you, Kamau. When you did end up seeing Get Out, like, were you were you glad? Were you feeling like, oh, I don't know what I was afraid of initially? <laughs> No, 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 no. I was like, yeah, I understood what I was getting into. <laughs> like, I, like, I, I was right to be afraid. I mean, I don't think I saw it with my wife. I don't know that she's seen it. Um, you know, maybe we need to have that discussion. Uh, but no, I think I was very, you know, it's one of those things where you see the trailer and you're like, he has nailed all the things. Like he is, he is like personified all the things that you're afraid of when you're a black person in that, in that experience. And so, no, when I saw it, I think I was more impressed by it than I thought I would be because it seemed, you know, maybe it was just a slasher film, but no, it was, I was, I was right to be afraid. I think I've only seen it once. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris writes, Jordan Peele's Nope and Get Out, they have to be on the list. And of course, uh, it is on the list. Nope and Get Out, as we just said, but Nope of 2022. In fact, I think there were like four films um, from 2022 that made this list, which is pretty remarkable. But Dan, talk about why you love Nope so much. Say a little bit more about it. Um, I just love that it is is an example of a filmmaker taking an opportunity at this huge canvas that he's got in a huge story that he writes and, and finding even more to do with it than you could possibly imagine. It has heart and it has guts and it also has such a brain behind it and it's playing so many tricks on us and 
leading us down so many dark hallways and scaring us and surprising us. Um, I just find it really inspirational to see someone take a big swing and be even more ambitious than probably anyone thought he would be. Uh, I think this movie really, really holds up. Um, and I think, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, people are going to look back and say, how the hell did this not get nominated for any Oscars? That is crazy. Well, Dan Coys is a writer for Slate. Aisha Harris is host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Kamau Bell is a comedian, host of CNN's United Shades of America, producer, director as well. We're all talking about the new black film canon, Slate's collaboration with NPR, which is comprised of 75 of the best films by black directors selected by a voting panel with a range of professions, views, and uh, relationships to the film industry as well. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. And let me go to caller Joseph in Portland. Hi, Joseph, you're on. Hi, guys. Uh, great work you're doing. Uh, just curious, I haven't seen the list yet, uh, but, you know, did An Anton Fuqua make it on there for Training Day? Uh, did Carl Franklin make it on there for One False Move? Did anything from Ernest Dickerson, you know, the uh, cinematographer for Spike Lee Films, uh, anything from him. I'm just curious if you guys are, you know, what's on the list, and have you noted, you know, have you looked at those those directors and given them their their props? Maisha or Dan? Thanks, Joseph. That's a big three of um, a, a particularly action and noir of the '90s and 2000s. Um, Fuqua did not make it on the list. Training Day, though, despite I think being one of Denzel's greatest performances. It wasn't named by a lot of our panelists, and I think the movie itself doesn't hold up the way that Denzel's performance does. Kamau, as the world's foremost scholar of Denzelology, you might have more to say on that. Um, but uh, but um, Ernest Dickerson is on there for Juice, and uh, Carl Franklin is on there, but not for um, the movie you mentioned, but for what, what I think one of the greatest mysteries of all time, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, an earlier Denzel performance. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would argue Denzel may be at his all-time sexiest, but come out, you be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's either that or Mississippi Masala, which is like the, the, <laughs> the apex of sexy Denzel, for sure. Mm. <laughs> What's your pick for the apex of sexy Denzel, come out? Oh, that's a, this is funny. I don't know if I've been asked this question. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I'm going to throw Mississippi Masala. I'm going to have to go with Aisha. I think that is, I think that's an underrated, unheralded Denzel sexy performance. Uh, mm. Yeah, I think that's that's what I would say. You wanted Fences to be on this year's list. It didn't make it, but just tell us what Fences meant to you, Kamau. Yeah, I'm trying not to hold that grudge, but again, I am America's <laughs> premier Denzelologist <laughs> podcast with my friend Kevin Avery. Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. We're which sorry, Kamau. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll do another list in a few years, and then we'll have defenses talking in. I just think that, like, and this is again coming from the Denzelit in me, uh, that that to have the career that he's having, to, for him to sort of say, "I'm going to take on the August Wilson oeuvre and make sure that we produce all these as films," and specifically that movie, you know, he could have Denzeled all over it, but he really was like created this space for Viola Davis to really sort of like to to get her flowers, and I think that's like an incredibly smart savvy and generous move for an actor of his of his stature to make and also it's you know and as i get older and older as a dad that speech about like i don't have to love you to his kid just hits harder and harder so like i just i just really uh love that film even though again i think i've seen it once i'm really interested in the way that both of the big august wilson movies of the last five or six years 
um, didn't get a lot of votes. Kamau, you voted for fences. We didn't get that many votes for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I sort of get the impression that they seem to, particularly to younger viewers and younger critics, just a little bit square. I think I would argue that they're sort of timeless and like classically crafted in the way that all of August Wilson's plays are. And I kind of wonder if maybe 10 or 20 years from now, people won't look back at those movies and realize just how good those stories really are. Mm. That's why I think it's important that Denzel is, is producing them because I don't think they're, I don't think they necessarily have to be for now. I think it's the way that most people are going to take in August Wilson's work is through these movies. And I think that, that this is, again, not adding them maybe to Slate's canon of Black movies, but adding them to the Black canon in general. So I think it's really important that I get why Denzel's doing it. It's like, these plays may not be produced that long. Maybe we won't be going to plays anymore. Who knows? But now these will at least have a way for people to lock them in time and go check them out. I think it's more about a legacy play than go see this movie now. Hmm. Well, well, Judd writes, I'd want... Sun Ra's 1974 movie Space is the Place, a sci-fi musical to be on the new black film canon list. Also, Ivan Dixon's 1964 Nothing But a Man. And I should point out that this list doesn't have films since 2016. Aisha Harris, you actually also have films that you've added that were from well before then. Is there any that you want to highlight? Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the ones, and this is actually, uh, I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say, it was a first time watch for me after it was recommended to us uh, for consideration for this list. Um, but it's Symbio Psycho Taxiplasm Take One, directed by filmmaker William Greaves. It's from 1968. And this is a meta documentary that will kind of like blow and contort your mind I, I guess the theme of this 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 talk is weirdness because this is another weird <laughs> movie um and, and and that I love it I love black people being weird basically Greaves is quote-unquote auditioning actors in Central Park for a project and he has like a full camera crew where he's he's act like working with these actors for and directing them in a scene and then he directs another camera crew to film him doing his thing with these actors and then he has yet another third camera crew who's filming everything <laughs> and then also everything that's happening off the to, to the side so any passerbys onlookers whatever and this movie really blurs the lines between art and reality and authenticity and, and how we consider those things and there's there's a key scene where some members of the crew are debating this entire experiment and they're like arguing and expressing frustrations about how Greed is acting on set. Um, and they're questioning whether or not there's like an actual method to what they perceive as his madness. Um, so I just, I was, I was blown away by this movie and I want to go back and watch it again and again and again. So that's Symbio's Psychotaxiplasm take one. Uh, this movie that. was um, highlighted by my colleague and friend Isaac Butler in his um, book about the method because all those actors were uh, studio theater actors, studio actors, studio actors, and uh, and it's like seeing the method on steroids. Wow. Well, it sounds like a ride. We'll hear about more films from our three panelists after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. The important thing is that I want to make sure that um, everything that happens on the set, I mean, whether it's off, off camera or whether it's among the crew or whether it's uh, being shot, ha- thematically, I mean, we should be constantly relating to uh, sexuality. That's a clip from Symbio's Psychotaxiplasm Take One, a film from 1968 that is on the new Black film canon list. Dan Coys and Aisha Harris have tallied the votes and added 25 new films to their original Black film canon, complete with how to watch them, which I love so much. And you can find the full list at slate.com slash Black Film. Dan Coys is a writer for Slate. Aisha Harris is host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. We also have Kamau Bell with us, comedian, host, and director, producer, host of CNN's United Shades of America. And you, our listeners, are highlighting some of your favorite new additions to the list or telling us about your favorite Black-directed films that you hope are on it and why. 866-733-6786 is the number. Email address, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And just before the break, we were hearing the song Silly Games by Janet Kay from Lover's Rock. And we have a listener, Maya, who writes, Steve McQueen's entire small act series, specifically Lover's Rock. Incredible music and depiction of the house party scene in Notting Hill, London in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Dan Coys, you want to talk about Lover's Rock? I think it was on your list, right? Oh, yeah. I just love this movie. Um, You know, Steve McQueen, of course, made 12 Years a Slave, which is a powerful and astonishing film that is also by design punishing to watch. And of course, that's in the canon. Um, But so is Lover's Rock, which is just this beautiful, light and sweet tribute to joy. It's just joy on a screen. Um, I've watched this movie like 10 times. I could watch it 100 times more. It's just filled with young people drinking, dancing, and falling in love, and great music, the reggae slow jams that the title promises. And yeah, as that listener notes, it was part of his small acts project, an incredibly ambitious set of five standalone movies made for the BBC about West Indian life in London. Um, And it's exactly the kind of project that, you know, I think in the before times, you know, before the moonlight, uh, get out 12 years of slave revolution, as I sort of think of it, a black director would never have been given that kind of those kinds of resources to make something that ambitious, truly an attempt to cover like the entire 20th century in West Indian life in London. And, uh, and the whole series is quite remarkable. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Matthew in San Francisco. Hi, Matthew, you're on. Hello. 
Um, I have a quick question. Kamal Ball, first of all, I saw you speak at St. Ignatius a few weeks ago. That was awesome. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And I am curious, I wanted to ask quickly about uh, both Spike Lee doing Skin on the Bus and Bamboozled, two of my favorite films. And until recently, you weren't able to even find Bamboozled until he released it in the Criterion Collection. So I'm wondering if those do and where they do fit on the list. Thank you very much. Bamboozled, get on the bus, Spike Lee, Aisha or Dan? Spike's all over this list. Um, so much so that... We, <laughs> It'd be weird if he wasn't. <laughs> I know, it would be weird. But like, but you know, what's remarkable is that n- the number of movies we didn't include that were favorites of many of our voters, but just didn't have like the popular support. And at some point we had to be Inside like... Inside Man. Like Inside yeah. Man, for example, an incredible yeah. movie. Like both of the movies that this caller asked about, both extremely good movies. Um, Bamboozled, in particular, has had a real critical renaissance over the last five or six years. It's been sort of reintroduced in theaters. Uh, it had a re-release and a restoration. It's out on Criterion. Um, but but I I think that Spike Lee has had such an incredible filmography that a lot of our voters focused on you know, what they think of as the classics, the Malcolm X, Do the Right Thing, the films of that era. And it is fun, really fun, to look beyond those, the movies you most remember from Spike and find the sort of outliers, the, the weird ones in his uh, filmography. And Bamboozled is a great example of one that doesn't quite yet have the popular support to be on a list like this, but isn't it like a, an enriching and wild movie-going experience. Can we yeah. just make a list of the of black the seventy five best black weirdo movies? Because I feel like it would be on that list very clearly. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> that, that is the next list for sure. Sarah writes, Cheryl Dunye is my favorite black director and my favorite queer director. She makes the films that she wants to see without pandering to a wider audience, and it's that specificity that ends up making them more relatable. She is also constantly directing my favorite episodes of TV, the credits roll, and I'm like, Cheryl, of course. <laughs> uh, Aisha, I think there's a, a film, Not, I don't think it's by a woman director but about a woman that's called time that was one that i was introduced to by reading about it on the new black film canon can you talk a little bit about it yeah well for the record cheryl dunier's watermelon woman is on our list so we i appreciate that listener uh and their their taste um but yeah time from 2020 is directed by garrett bradley and it's this really really beautiful and also a heartbreaking documentary uh, about a woman, a businesswoman named Fox Rich. She's also a prison abolitionist and she's from Louisiana. And she spent decades contesting her husband Robert's 61 or 60 year prison sentence for a crime that they both committed when they were younger out of economic desperation. And what's really fascinating about this film is that it combines Garrett Bradley's documentation of Fox Rich fighting for like fighting to bring her husband home with years worth of Rich's own home movies. Um, Rich like chronicled her day to day life and her children growing up in part because she wanted to be able to show her husband at some point, let him see what he couldn't see while he was in prison. And that combination of that footage and the imagery, this movie really understands how time is so fragile and so meaningful, especially for Black people and especially for those who are caught up in the prison system. And Fox Rich is also just a very charismatic and very empathetic 
person to see this very complex issue through the lens of. Um, so Time is just one of those movies that will really leave you thinking and and crying and just feeling so many emotions. I really love that film. Yeah, let's just hear a little bit from it. My twins will be 18 next month. Eighteen years old. When their daddy got sentenced, I was um, three months pregnant. They have absolutely no idea about what it means to have a father in their house. What fathers even do. That's from the film Time. And actually, Aisha, can I have you talk a little bit about The Watermelon Woman? As you say, it's on the list. We had just another listener write in saying Cheryl Dunye's Black Lesbian Satire, The Watermelon Woman, is an incredible satire with a topical and most current kick. Yeah, so this is from 1996, and Cheryl plays like a version of herself. She's kind of this movie nerd who's working at a video store and she becomes really just uh, obsessed and entranced by this black actress she sees who keeps popping up in mammy roles in the 30s and 40s. So kind of like the Hattie McDaniel gone with the wind type of black woman character that was so often seen in film and TV shows at that time. And she's a queer woman and she is also dating and it just doesn't really... It's it's one of those movies from the 90s that's it, it, it has that sort of like indie 90s sunbacks, sun, Sundance loose feel to it, um, but it's also really thoughtful and contemplating all these things about sexuality, femininity, blackness, and is really in conversation with Hollywood history in the way that a lot of the movies on our list are, like um, Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend. Um, you know, I, I think that more people need to see this movie, and I hope that they do. Um, and as you mentioned, we have all of our like streaming info on the site, so people can go to it, check out the list, and also see how they can stream it. Uh, speaking of Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend, I think, Kamau, you were quoted for the description of that film. You want to say a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we're sort of talking about a lot of films that will increase in sort of their stature as the years go on. And Hollywood Shuffle has definitely been that film that for, for, you know, as a young kid who saw that film at like an art house theater in Chicago, where Robert Townsend is from and to sort of go and, and to sort of then move through my entertainment career and be like, everything he said is exactly the same. <laughs> like everything he said in a comment about what it is to be black in Hollywood is, is, is still true. And I think that like, Robert Townsend was ahead of his time in trying to make different types of film. Again, we're just being the theme of the day for black audiences. And he was making like black family films at a time when Hollywood was like, no, no, no. Black people just want stories about what it's like to be in the ghetto and how they sell drugs and how rap music is all they ever do. And so he was really pushing against the tide there in a way that now you look up and there's a lot more, you know, you know, I sit down with my daughters and there's a ton of films about for black families, and he was ahead of his time. So I think he doesn't talk about a guy who doesn't get his credit. I think he he deserves a lot more credit for what he did. Mm. It's an interesting point in terms of just how how much changes, but also how much remains the same. You know, Aisha, when you were launching the Black Film Canon, when you were with Slate in 2016, 
um, I was reading about how the origins or or the issues that inspired it was really challenging gatekeepers and you know people who determine what should be lauded or what should be viewed or what counts as artistry and so on, really challenging that. And I wonder if that is the still the intent of this list or if you would modify that intent in some way, given where Black filmmaking is today or, or even maybe where the country is today? Um, I think that's definitely still a huge part of it because even as the Sight and Sound list, for example, has this the most recent version, which was released in December. Um, and this is a, a, a poll that ha- occurs every 10 years. Um, and they they polled various critics and filmmakers and asked them for their favorite films of all time. Um, and this is a very esteemed list within the cinephile community. And this most recent list actually was the most diverse ever. There were a ton of Black uh, directors and filmmakers who were added to it. But even when that happened, there was a lot of pushback from some people, prominent people, prominent white filmmakers who called it woke uh, and called it, you know, uh, they disparage it because they thought, oh, we're letting all the Black people in. (laughs) Um, And I think that it's important to still have the Black film canon because we're still dealing with that pushback. Um, But at the same time, the point is that we, these things have always been here. Black people have always been making these films. It's just that it's gotten easier for them to get made and get made the, the way they might want to and to get seen by larger audiences. And, and so that's kind of the, the dual purpose and the way I see it. Um, you know, I, I, I think I've, I've, I've seen it as sort of like a version of the uh, Library of Congress, like their national, the, how they add, films are added to that every every so often. And I see it as that, like it's not even necessarily, we're not saying these are the only great Black films. We're saying that these are some of the best and some of the best that deserve to be preserved and lifted up. Yeah, Aisha Harris, again, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, author also of a forthcoming collection of original essays called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. Dan Coy's site is also author of the new novel Vintage Contemporaries, and Kamau Bell, comedian and producer, director, and host, is also co-author of the new book Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book with Kate Schatz. And um, I just want to remind listeners you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And uh, Bell and Chats will be doing a fundraiser for Montclair Community Play Center and Abundant Beginnings on March 24th at Montclair Presbyterian Church in Oakland, just to put that out there for the Bay Area listeners among us. Um, But you listeners are sharing a lot of your picks that are both in the canon and not in the canon. Charlie writes, shout out for Netflix's documentary, Is That Black Enough for You? Noel tweets, boys in the hood, devil in a blue dress, Fruitvale Station, do the right thing. Another listener writes, Watermelon Man with Godfrey Cambridge in 1970, a film way ahead of its time. Adriana tweets, I'd also add Lovecraft Country if we could add in a limited series or just to praise Misha Green. Come on, I'd love to get your thoughts listening to Aisha describe the purpose of the list about why you think these kinds of lists are important. I mean, you know, black people have always had to create our own, uh, uh, 
ways to talk about who we are and what we've created in this country because we're often ignored by the by the powers that be. So this list is just as important as like the fact that there's a NAMAC, the the Smithsonian Museum for Black History in DC is just as important because otherwise that stuff gets thinned out and other museums are not talked about at all. So for me, I really do encourage people. This is not a list to fight over. It's a list for people who are like, do black people make films? Yes, we make films. If you know more films than this, great. Talk about those films. But I think it's, you know, it's always important to highlight black excellence until this country starts to do it by default, which it still does not do by default. Yeah. Well, Chris writes, thanks for calling out the Academy for not nominating Nope this year. A regrettable snub. One more thing to mention about the genius of Nope. It's a thriller and a sci-fi, but there are no guns. All the shooting is done by cameras, cameras of all kinds. A fine tribute to movie and picture making. The Oscars have come up a few times in this conversation. And and Chris is right. There were some notable there was some notable sidelining of black films. The Woman King was ignored, for example, which I saw was on the list um, and, and a few other disappointments as well. But I'm curious overall, just because it just happened, what you what you made of it this year, Aisha Harris. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, The Woman King actually was one of our top vote-getters for the list. Like, so many people were championing this film. And it, it, it just shows that, you know, a couple steps forward, a couple steps back. Progress is not linear. Um, I think that, yes, I'm still shocked that Nope got no, absolutely no uh, recognition. There are, you know, so many different ways in which Black people are still fighting to be seen and and be seen as worthy of being nominated. Even the controversy over Andrea Riseborough's uh, nomination, um, which you know was a little mm. more nuanced than it often played out, but yeah. it did it did speak to this idea of okay, who in Hollywood gets to have that kind of groundswell of support from their peers uh, and, and helps them sort of get launched into that stratosphere, and who doesn't? And we often don't see those things happening, or at least not. Happening and then paying off for Black performers in the way that it did seem to do for Andrew Riseborough. So yeah. yeah, there's a there's a, there's still a long way to go uh, when it comes to how we talk about these things and who we choose to honor. It was an evening with such historic recognition for Asian filmmakers and Asian film, Asian actors, and so on. Um, but that sense of like, okay, this is an incredible step forward, but still you know, we keep taking two steps forward and one step back really hit me when I saw Halle Berry presenting the award to Michelle Yeoh for best actor and that they're like the only two, I think. Yeah. Women of color to have won it in the 95 year history of the Academy Award. Well, let's even think about the fact that Ruth Carter is the only black woman with two Academy Awards. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for like, the Black Panther the, movies. Yeah, for the, costume. The black design. woman I work with, when you heard that, almost spit. Like it was the idea that, like, you're telling me in all the black, all the black excellence that black women created in Hollywood, there's only one black woman with two Academy Awards. Yeah. Well, the power of film and the power to to shape the minds of gatekeepers and to change who they are. My goodness. Thank you, Aisha Harris, Dan Coys, and Kamal Bell for such a smart. An interesting and, you know, like celebratory in a way, conversation. Um, really appreciate it, all of you. Thanks. Th- thank you. Blackboard is 2023. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. 
Thank you, listeners, for sharing also your favorites, your picks, your thoughts. You have been listening to Forum. Thanks, Caroline Smith, for producing the segment. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.